Hey there, Heike Yates here, and welcome back to another episode of the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Thanks for tuning in today. This is awesome to have you here on the show. Picture this scenario. You want something or you need something in your life, but you don't know how to say it directly without emotions and getting what you're asking for instead of skirting around the subject thinking of all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't ask and how you should ask and thinking what might the other person think if you're going to ask or request something, well, my friend, then today's episode is for you because everything is negotiable. Enjoy. Hi there, you're listening to the Pursue Your Spark podcast. I'm your host and fitness warrior, Heike Yates. And on this show, we empower women over 50 to take back their health and strength with sound fitness, nutrition, and mindset strategies. Our guests on the show share their honest stories so that you'll have the courage to take action, knowing that you're not alone in your struggles. Our guest today is Dr. Marsha Lichtenstein. Marsha helps women own their voice and ask for what they need and get it. She coaches women to speak up for themselves while maintaining caring and compassionate towards others. She's the creator of Smart Cookie Coaching and the author of Perfect Pitch, How to Speak Up for Yourself in Everyday Situations. Welcome to the show, Marsha. Well, thank you, Heike. I'm so happy to meet, meet you. It's great. It's uh, and I know I pronounced your your name German, but it's it's just normal to me to say Liechtenstein. <laughs> no, it's great. My family is German. We have that in common. Where are they from? That I don't know. I know I really don't know where they moved from. My Grandparents were born here, so it was a really long time ago when they came to the United States. Yeah, yeah. What I know, I read, you love playing the piano. I know. When, how, why, what? Tell us. Well, I started playing the piano when I was probably like 12 or 13 years old. It was just a natural thing for me to do. It felt wonderful. And uh, it was just a joyful joyful experience for me to make music um, i still have a piano it's terribly out of tune but as soon as i can i want to have it tuned up and um play again it's very soothing it's a self-soothing thing for me what type of music do you play i love classical music for me to play on the piano because um i guess i just started out that way so i like to play the things that i learned when i was young yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just a just a nice memory for me. I actually grew up with a lot of chaos around me and my family and the piano was a little refuge. Oh, that's I can mm-hmm. see that I love the piano as well. Mhm. Now, in your introduction in your book, which we'll talk about later, is you said growing up with my Eastern European grandfather was who was fond of leaning over me and pinching my cheek really hard and telling me I was a smart cookie. Then he would chuckle. Yes, that's a this, very 
strong memory. <laughs> this reminds me so much of my grandfather. That's why I wanted to read it. Oh, wow. I was like, this must have been something they did back in the days. <laughs> yes. I was a little concerned about the pinching because it was pretty hard. <laughs> it hurt, didn't it? <laughs> it hurt. <laughs> so, I guess it was affectionate, but it hurt. Oh, man, I know. I was, when I read this, I was like, yeah, I know exactly what she's talking about. <laughs> wow. So, Marsha, tell us, where did you grow up and what was your life like? So our listen, my listeners can meet you. Thank you. I, I'd be happy to share this because it actually really is kind of why I ended up doing what I do. And um, it's always interesting to find out, oh, this is the path I was on when you look back at it. So I grew up in New York City, which is where I was born. And I was the first grandchild on both sides. And I had a large extended family, not just grandparents, but great aunts and great uncles. And with all these people, I was the first grandchild. And I grew up feeling like I was a little princess. And um, I have all these wonderful photos of me being held by every relative, and I have a big smile on my face. So I had kind of a lovely time the first, like, seven or eight years of my life. We had really fun things to do. In New York City then, we would go to the zoo, we would go to the museums, and I really, really liked living there. When I was about nine or ten, we left New York and moved out to the suburbs in New Jersey. And at that point, that was a real um, eye-opening experience because all my grandmas and nanas, they, weren't, they didn't come with us. They stayed in New York. <laughs> Oh, and I felt so abandoned. I can totally see that. Yeah, and it was like, oh, what's this world that you've moved me into? It was so different. And I was just with my parents, and my, now I had two other siblings. Pretty quickly had three other siblings. So all of a sudden, I was the oldest. Instead of the little princess, I was like the little mother. Uh oh, that was not fun. <laughs> it was a big shock to my system. And um, so, as soon as we were in our little suburban home, everything was really different. And I felt like at that point I had to grow up really fast and be um, really responsible. I sort of developed this um, deep sense of responsibility for my siblings. And instead of being taken to the zoo and the museum, I ended up cleaning the house and babysitting and changing diapers. So I, I'm just kind of expressing like that was a real shock to my system and my little girl wasn't prepared for it at all. I can imagine. I know. And um, I was very precocious and I hadn't stopped being precocious at all, but it really wasn't, it didn't really fit in with the new life. So I learned, this is where I learned to really be quiet. I learned to not speak up and say any little thing that came to my mind and have an attentive audience. I learned that things are um, not that way anymore. I really better watch it. I, I have a lot of new responsibilities, and this is not about me anymore. 
Hmm. For how long did that go on? It, it never ended. <laughs> oh, that was it. It was like night and day. I really was in shock. So it was like, oh, this is my new life. I, as a little kid, I couldn't say that to myself. I'm just looking back because it really shaped my um, behaviors after that. I really had always wanted to get back to that place where I felt the kind of freedom I had when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I felt like um, so much was interesting to me. I was so excited about life and my parents were overburdened, totally overburdened with having four children and very little money. And it was a very, it was very difficult. Mm -hmm. And I was just expected to like grow up fast and be part of this um, caretaking team for the other kids. So my, um, all my excitement, it really wasn't that appreciated. That's what I'm saying. It was like, uh-oh, time to be quiet and just be obedient. And really, Heike, I'm not an obedient person. <laughs> but I had to learn that. I had to kind of wear it like a facade. Yeah. And it was my inner, my inner excited, precocious child always wanted to come out and never could. I had to leave home in order for that to happen. When did you leave home? Um, I was probably like, I'm um, 18 when I went to college. Where'd you go to college? I was in Jersey then. So I went to college at Rutgers university. Okay. Mm -hmm. Still living at home, still taking care of the little, littler ones. Yeah. I managed to get, um, a scholarship to go live in the dorms. So some is deep. I was free. Yay. I was free. <laughs> What what was your degree in, or what what did you study? Sociology. What made, what made you choose that? You know, when I was um, in school, there was so much um, so much social change going on. There was a lot of uh, there was a civil rights movement. There was a women's movement. There was all kinds of social change. Mm. The war in Vietnam was a really big source of protest for people. And it was fascinating. You know, I was just fascinated by human behavior, social change, and that discipline fit right in with that. Yeah, yeah. So you studied sociology, and then what happened? What happened? So I finished. You started going out protesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I felt like, um, yes, protesting is really important. So I, I finished college. I spent a, a summer working at a children's home for kids that were, um, that had a lot of emotional problems. That was really interesting to me. And then I got a job as a social worker for a couple of years. Oh. And that is very hard work. I really respect people that can work with people at that level. And um, I did that, and then I got a real interest in going back to school and pursuing a graduate degree, and I did that. I stayed in Jersey, I stayed at Rutgers, and I got my master's and my doctorate in sociology. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of work in studying family, studying communication. Um, I always liked learning, so I felt like I was totally at home in that environment. I was really grateful that I was able to kind of escape into this new world where you could really speak up, you could have ideas, you could share them, 
and you didn't have to worry about what your parents needed or wanted. What did, they, like think, what did they think about it, your parents? Mm. Well, my parents really had a very patriarchal idea about gender. And I think they were hoping that I would stay home and go to work and help out. There was really that expectation, and I was not cut out for that. God, yeah, I can see. I was that. not cut out for that. And I actually was treated like uh, someone who broke the rules. I left, and I was like, my. I was not, that was not well received, I have to tell you. I feel like I've been in rebellion most of my life. That was not well received. I was disappointing people. Mm -hmm. And you know, we're girls, we're not supposed to disappoint anybody. Nope, nope. And that's part of our conversation we're talking about today as well. So I know. As you're moving forward, because I can so relate to your story from my aspect of life, because mm. I'm like, I took care of my younger brother for years. And it was mm -hmm. a similar situation. You suddenly become the adult. The fun has gone. Mm -hmm. the special is gone. And suddenly you're the mom. And uh, I, I was, just like you said, I was not very obedient and I wasn't listening much. So I went the other route. I just bullheaded my way through things. And so I got punished a lot. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't working well for me either. So... <laughs> Right. And I had that experience too, because I couldn't always keep quiet. I was just bursting with, I was inquisitive, curious, creative. And, you know, I crossed that line way too often and then I would get punished. Yep. So um, that's yeah. not a good experience. No. And that makes you just want to, if you have the option, like we both had it, we took the opportunity. We just moved on. Just bolted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not like we ran away. I mean, that was my first impulse to say it, but it's not like we're running away. We're making a different choice. Right. We're choosing ourselves. Yep. And yep. that wasn't what girls were supposed to do, at least not in the family I was raised in. We were really supposed to be a lot more obedient. Mm -hmm. But I still have to attribute some of this spunkiness to my first nine years of being treated like I was so special. And that I could have or do anything I want. That was like so important to me. Like I hung, I just kind of clung to that, knowing that I, I could, I could, I could be on my own. There was yeah. something that my grandparents gave me that made me feel like, yes, I don't have to do it this. I don't have to do it this way. I can do it my way. So you moved on. You graduated. You demonstrated. Demonstrated, yeah. <laughs> Right, beautifully. <laughs> and then you got a job and then you, you got married. Is that right? Well, yes. I got married in college, actually. Did we ever talk about that? I got married no. in college, but that didn't last very long. That was really heartbreaking to me. It was a very confusing time. And then I ended up, back to the story, finishing college, going to graduate school and really starting to create my own life without um, having to answer to anybody. I still brought those scars with me, though, about what was permitted. How, how much permission did I have to speak up? How much permission did I have to break the rules? How much permission did I really have to be who I really was? 
because my experiences growing up kept with my parents kept reinforcing that I wasn't allowed to do that. And I really had to hide so much of that at home. So when I got on my own, I wasn't really clear about how much could I risk? How much could I show? And I really like people. I love being with people. I love relationships. And I have this whole people-pleasing side. I'm like a rebel who wants to people-please. That's a really bad combination. That's a tough one. Right <laughs> <laughs> I was really torn, you know, one foot in, one foot out. I really struggled with that. I really struggled with finding my own voice. I struggled with showing up as I really am. And, um, but then I really wanted to be accepted. So I did that dance for many years. So I'm kind of uh, speaking from experience about how difficult it is to balance that innate creativity and desire for authenticity that we have and these gender roles and rules about women that really tell us not to do that. I really struggled with that for so many years. You had an unexpected fall that seems like it changed everything. Well, I was just moving along. It's true in my life. Um, and I had this major fall in 2011. Um, so what it changed for me was I realized that anything could happen to me anytime. We all know that like in an abstract way, anything could happen to you anytime. You could die any day. You don't have control over things like that, but it really brought it home to me because I lost my mobility for several months and I had to stop what I was doing. And I realized, wow, I wouldn't want to end my life this way. What do I really want in my life? So I call that fall like a game changer for me because it just made me decide to take myself much more seriously. I think it was a point at which I realized I could only live for myself, that I can't keep putting other people ahead of me. And I'm saying that because I'm a very empathetic and compassionate person. And I can say that knowing fully well that other people would still always be important to me. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to run off and be a full-fledged narcissist. I don't have that in me. I really needed that extra push to put myself at the top of my list because I never would have done it, I don't think, if I hadn't really injured myself and thought, wow, what if this was it and I'm not really being that good to myself? Yeah. That's and why it was so important to note that in the book. I love that passage or one of the passages in the book where you took care of your dog. Your dog was with you when you fell, mm -hmm. when you were unstable at one point, and you're like, what am I going to do with my dog? And you yes. asked for help. Well, I had this interesting interaction with the um, police officers that came. I fell, I couldn't, I was in such bad pain. I couldn't even like lift my arm without excruciating pain. So somebody saw me lying on the sidewalk and called the 911, but before the um, ambulance came, two officers came, and I had just been out walking with my dog for an hour. He was exhausted, and I was really worried that they would take him to the pound, so I asked them to please 
take my dog back to the house. And I managed to lift my arm and wave my keys. And they're like, no, no, ma'am, we're not allowed to do that. And here I am, delirious with pain, and I'm determined to get my dog into a safe place. And I'm like, I'm down there, half a block, the cul-de-sac. No alarm, just put the dog in the house, please. And they said, okay. <laughs> I said, okay. They took my keys, they took the dog, they put him in the house, and they came back and gave me my keys back. I was like, wow, here I am negotiating with two officers, and I'm delirious. Wow. There's something here. <laughs> this was a pivotal moment for you to realize the need to speak up. Well, you know, I was being that protective mother for my dog, right? Yep. Did not want to see that dog go to the pound. So that felt like, and when I reflected on my experience, I thought, you know, that was really an important moment for me. I put any question of wanting them to like me or not or like doing it the way I'm supposed to do it. I said, this is it. This is what I need and want. Yeah. I'm just going to do it. And it was amazing when I look back on it that I was able to do that, given how much pain I was in. Especially under the circumstances you were in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why are we as women trying to be nice and not ruffle, ruffle feather, feathers? And how can we break out of this mold of, like you took action into, I want to take care of my dog. I'm going to speak up for what I need somebody else to do for me right now. Most women would just be quiet and suffer or beat themselves up because they didn't do anything. So why are we as women trying to be nice and not ruffle feathers? And how can we break out of this mold that has been created for us? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, why? do women feel the compulsion to be nice? Yeah. And we could spend a few days talking about that, really. <laughs> I mean, it's true. We're taught that way. We're taught to be nice. I love that little rhyme, sugar and spice and everything nice. Yes. How many times did I hear that growing up? It feels like every day somehow, but that's what we're supposed to be. So we hear that. We hear that in our culture. Yeah. I mean, if you just watch go to the movies or watch a television show if any young girl or woman is um too aggressive too self-concerned they're not nice anymore they're they're like the bad person in the drama right right it's very easy to get labeled that so we're really conditioned through media social media movies books even to be that very accommodating people pleasing person And then often our families reinforce that. If you're lucky and your family didn't, then congratulations. But my family really reinforced that, that we should be. I remember these family gatherings we had where the men would be in the living room because we had this big extended family and they'd be talking politics and arguing and the women would be in the kitchen and very quiet talking about God knows what, nothing I was interested in, unfortunately. And I'd go and sit in the edges of the conversation the men were having. And they weren't nice. They were arguing. They were having opinions. And yet I couldn't get to speak because it just wasn't the way that girls were supposed to be. So a lot of family conditioning and a lot of cultural conditioning. And, you know, at work, you want to speak up at a meeting 
it's really hard to get your voice heard. Yeah. It's really hard to get your ideas accepted. Women in 2020 are still struggling with having an equal seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Many women will tell me, you know, I said this, I presented this great idea. In fact, someone, someone just came to me for some coaching and she was dealing with this issue. She had this great idea. She had shared it with her boss. They went to a big meeting and he presented that idea as his own. What? And she was like, wow, 2020 and that happened. And we're talking about how she could approach that and what she could do next. And so it's still happening because he probably was counting on her to be nice and not challenge him. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. my, my best guess that he was relying on that stereotype for her not to speak up for herself. So it's important to me that I speak up for myself and I realize it's not just me. Other women need to be taught those skills and um, we need to be able to speak directly for what we want too. We have to stop using weak language. It's important not to do what they call hedging. You know what I mean? Like that, like, well, I want to talk to you about, like you said, I could have a promotion sometime. And, you know, I was just wondering, is it okay if we talk about this now? Um, You know, that kind of language. I know. I totally can relate to that. Yeah. You hear my hesitancy, my lack of confidence, the fact that I'm not really sure I deserve a promotion. That's the kind of stuff I want women to stop doing because they do know better. They do know they deserve this promotion or the salary they do know they are allowed to charge more fees for their work but yet we're so apologetic for wanting things that yes as we know we become very indirect we use that kind of indirect language and frankly when you speak like that no one knows what you're asking for that's a good point that's a very good point. So, so we, have, we have become, really women have become masters of, as self-doubt and in turn self-sabotaging ourselves. Right. I mean, it is supported by the structures we live in, but we can only change that very slowly and through bigger measures, but we can work at changing ourselves. And that's where coaching comes in or self-help books, or whatever you use for your own personal transformation there are tools out there to change that way of being and thinking we do need to break out of this mold just for our own personal success and our personal authenticity let's use your example of the i'm asking for promotion you shared with us what many women would say in exactly the same wordage and i can raise my hand i have done it and i read your book and i was like now I know how to deal with this person after reading your book. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Good for um, you. Yeah. What would you say instead of like asking for that raise? I would advise someone to write down what they want to say. I think it helps so much to have a little script. Okay. Have it written a little cheat sheet. I'm really big on telling women to have cheat sheets and just be really clear why you're meeting. You're not meeting to have a cup of coffee or to check in. Like 
today I'm here to follow up on the discussion about my promotion. Could you tell me where that is in the process? That's a good opening line. That's clear and direct. And it makes a request. Could you tell me where we are in the process? I like that. Yeah, just get to the point. Um, so why do you think we're not getting to the point? Women, for the most part, aren't really sure that they deserve it. You know, have you ever heard of the imposter syndrome? That's very big in, in many industries right now. People feel like they, the, the imposter syndrome is everywhere right now. Well, before it was everywhere right now, women were really familiar with it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think now it has a name. Now it has a name. It has a yes. name. So for those of you listeners who don't know what an imposter syndrome is, Marsha, tell them. Well, it's imposter, imposter syndrome is when you're worried that someone's going to see through you and they're going to figure out that you're faking it and that you really don't know anything and that you don't deserve this job, you don't deserve this money. You're just an imposter, you're faking it. And it is something within you. And because it's within you, and because you're the only one who can control your thoughts, you can break out of it. And I'm really glad it has a name, because now we can address it directly. Yeah. And what I like to do, if I may, of course, jump in here with this, because one of the things I like to do with women who are trying to raise their fees with clients or get a promotion or more money at work is to do an um, inventory of what they actually provide at their work. Like I have a whole inventory list and we go over it and I help you specify what the value is that you're bringing to your job or to your company or to your clients. Really, really help people make it so concrete they can't say no. I do that. Yes, I do that because we've put it into some very tangible, measurable outcomes. To me, that is a great way to break the imposter syndrome. Writing and on paper so you can see what you actually are doing, providing, and, and the things that you are being paid for in this case. Right. And I'd like to emphasize that what we're looking at are outcomes. I'm not going to say um, I'm coaching women to speak up. I'm going to say I coached Heike and then she actually asked for a $10,000 raise and she got it. You know, I'm going to put a measurable outcome on how I helped. Very good. And that's what I will help people, women, actually make it measurable. That's a really important thing. If you're listening, thinking, well, I'm, I do a lot of good work and how come I'm not getting paid? Before you go to your manager with a request, Take that inventory, make it measurable. Then you have something to show. Don't say I'm a fundraiser and I've been doing it for 20 years. Say I brought in this much money for this much, this project. And I brought in that much money from private donors. Really, really make it measurable. 
it's proof and it proves to you that you're really worth it. This is just like what I recommend in, in a, from a fitness aspect too, mm. to set your smart goals that mm-hmm. set a goal. So it's measurable, it's attainable, it has a time frame, um, and that it has a, the result in the end. So it's a very similar concept. I love that. That's great. I love that too. Cool. When you think of when we're stepping outside of our boundaries, Marsha, and we want to own our voice, but we want to do this without guilt or shame, which many of my listeners and the, the group coaching I give, the guilt and the shame is so strong in so many women that I think it's difficult for them to step outside of those boundaries and and use the strategy. What would you say to that? Right. I think what you're pointing out is something that I really resonate with. I know that I could teach skills constantly. And if someone's self-worth isn't in the right place, they won't be able to use those skills. And I think you can see in the book, I start out with attitudes, assumptions, beliefs, mindset. Yeah. If you, you need to work on that first. You need to work on your relationship with yourself, the beliefs you hold about yourself that sabotage you before tools and skills are really going to take hold. They have to have a platform to land on. And that platform has to be a platform of self-love and self-worth. Yes. And that is something I think all coaches really need to work on with their clients first. I know that's a first place I like to go because I don't want to teach somebody something they won't be able to use because they're going to feel guilty if they try to speak up. So let's look at what is that belief that's sabotaging you. I truly believe that we have one or two key beliefs that we learned really young that are like linchpins for all of these other negative feelings like guilt, shame, lack of self-worth. I think there's something there that can be unpacked and reversed. So like for me, I'll just talk about my own example. Um, The way I grew up, what I needed, wanted, felt, thought was overwhelming to my parents. And one message I got constantly was, you don't feel that. You don't know that. That's not what you want. That's not what you need. They kept denying my own reality of what I knew was true for myself. And after years of that, I lost confidence in my own knowledge of who I was and what I wanted and what I needed. And when I saw that, I kind of decided to work with that and how could I reverse that? And I really love affirmations. So just to make this um, like jump to the end, I figured out that what was undermining me is that I felt that I was not in control of my life, that everything I needed, wanted, felt was constantly denied. And how could I reverse that? So I created an affirmation for myself, which is I am my own authority in my life, which is the antithesis of what I was taught as a child. I love that. And I worked on that. I think I put in the book this method of using a mirror. Yes. I love that. I love that process. Yep. 
it's and, not just um, saying it to to the wall it's like actually speaking it to yourself in the speak, mirror yes you're looking in your own eyes and as i explain in the book it is hard you really don't want to do it and i would look at myself and say who are you kidding get over it you know have this kind of dialogue with myself that wasn't that kind at the beginning but i persisted if you persist you'll find that it'll shift and you're like oh i am my own authority in my life i am and you become more and more certain of it the longer you can look at yourself and tell yourself yes i am that person so i felt that was an important strategy to share because it works for me so many times yeah. And I think that's how you get at it. I think you uncover what is it that's holding you back. Where did you learn that? We can examine whether it's true or not, but I'm not even that concerned. I'm really concerned with that transformational process. And one of those processes is doing that work in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, when you look in the mirror, usually to brush your teeth or do your makeup, it's a very different looking at yourself. Mm more truthful um, and, and with honesty when you mm -hmm. go through that process to change your thought. Yes. And that's a good way of putting it. You're changing your thinking about yourself. Yeah. And you can do that. What I like about it is you don't have to have anybody's permission. You don't need anybody there to do it with you. It's something you do with yourself. It's very strong. Yeah. And that's like you said, it's the first step is that you break out of this mold by working on yourself and not the circumstances around you. That probably would be second, I would think. Right. I think learning the skills is second. There's always room for triage. If you need to hurry up and ask for that promotion, of course, you can use the skills and do what you need to do what's in front of you. But for long-term change, I definitely agree, and you do this with your um, fitness work. The person has to have this attitude of self-worth and self-love. Really, They really matter to themselves, and they're going to do this for themselves because they want to be healthy, happy, authentic, whole, whatever the change is that they're looking for. Yeah. You help create people uh, a toolbox for people to speak up. What might one find in that toolbox? What would be one of the two toolbox tips the tips, yeah, well, strategies. <laughs> the strategies are um, things that we need to do. We need to know how to set boundaries. This is really good for women that work at home and have children, or even a spouse that also works at home. I've heard this complaint many times. I, I keep getting interrupted by my kids. So how can we work on that so that you have a sacred space to work in and you won't have people crashing through your boundaries when you're doing important work. So setting boundaries, strategies for setting boundaries, saying no, learning to ask questions. I really like teaching women how to negotiate. It's not a scary thing at all. I like to explain that it's a conversation and you know how to talk so you can do this. And, um, you know, your book helped me with this, I got to oh, tell you. Tell me. So I have been a landlord for five years, and I had two groups of people come through the house. So the first people rented for a year, and then I had the second group 
come in and rent the house for the last four years. And being a landlord is tough because you're dealing with so many different personalities and expectations. And this was the house that I bought, my very first house that I bought with literally no money uh, when I was a single mom with two little kids. So this was my little nest, my haven, my everything. So the first group of renters went through and I said, okay, I can do this again. And I got a little family that had one child and a cat and they moved in and they leased the house for a year and the house didn't quite look the way I would like it to look. But everybody has their different style of, of living. Uh, so I can't judge them for that. Um, so as, as they extended the lease for another two years, the lease was about to end the end of April. And just thinking about that I had to tell them that they are not, uh, no longer can rent the, the premises, but that I would sell it was really, really tough for me. I was thinking, okay, how do I tell them this? Uh, what do I say? What excuses do I use to tell them that I want them out and I want the house sold and I don't want to be a landlord anymore? And uh, in previous conversations, we had some tense moments and again it's personalities that I just was a little bit um, taken aback sometimes that I felt hurt a little bit with the things that how they were said to me and so I was worried that it would be the same again that there was be somebody something negative coming my way and so I decided that after I read, read your book I said okay stick to the facts this is not a, a, a favor you're doing something or somebody, this is your property, this is how you make money, and this is what you need to do for me to be happy. So I said, okay, Marsha said, speak up for yourself. So I did make that phone call, and I called, and at first it was a very rough, like, hey, what do you want, type thing. And that initially would have put me back already into being uh, less direct. And so I said, nope, Marsha said, so I said very, I stated very clearly that I was going to sell the house and that I no longer wanted to be a landlord and that they could purchase the house if they wanted to, but I would put it on the market at the end of their lease term and they have enough time to uh, find another home if they chose to, but they also could buy it. And they were turning into sweet butter and oh my goodness and they will think about what they're going to do. But I felt so proud of myself that I was direct, not around the bush, not making apologies for what I wanted, and that I wasn't worried of how the other person would react towards me. So that was huge. So your book did change my life. Well, you put a big smile on my face. I got to say that. Congratulations. Well, thank you for being here on the show and letting me read your book and letting me learn new strategies that helped me so much. Oh, with. that's so wonderful. Thank you. So now the house is, is for sale and hopefully by the end of the month, it will be done, done and done. Congrats. I hope so. That'd be a great thing to celebrate. Yes. And I, I um, hired somebody who is selling it for me. So she said, no, do not get in the middle of this because mm -hmm. you raised your kids there. This is an emotional property for you. 
I'm going to do the negotiation because if you do, you give it for them for, an, uh, I don't know if this is an English saying or not, but in German, you say an apple and an egg mm -hmm. at the end of the month, everything should be done. Oh, oh that's wonderful. So, Absolutely. but so I thank you for all of this. So Marcia, is there anything that you'd like to share with our listeners before we close? Well, I just would like to say, really honor yourself. Don't let other people define you. Know yourself and honor yourself. That is a really like first place to go for any kind of personal transformation. And where can people learn more about you and work with you? So my website is um, www.smartcookiecoach.com. And there's a lot of information about me and my programs. And if you've become interested in the book, because Heike has mentioned it several times, you can download a free chapter. And I would encourage you to do that and read a little bit about how to speak up for yourself. Where can they reach you on social media? My social media page on Facebook is www.facebook.com slash smart cookie coaching. Okay. Do you that is my business page. And you can also see an invitation to my private Facebook group. If you go there and you're welcome to join that group, if you're interested in, in more. Awesome. Marsha, it was so nice to talk to you and thank you for letting me, letting me share my success story because oh, I'm so happy. That's so wonderful. Thank and you. Thank you for being here and sharing all your wisdom with my listeners. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to meet you and to hang out with you for this hour. Thank you. Okay. Bye, Heike. Bye. So what do you think? Just based on my two examples, you have to buy the book, the Smart Cookie Coaching book. It is incredible. It, it just blew my mind and it gave me the confidence that I needed. Yes, and I am Miss Confidence herself. I needed the confidence to be as direct as I showed you or told you in my example. And the person that really helped me with Marsha and her strategies. So please reach out to us to her on Facebook at Smart Cookie Coaching and get the book, The Perfect Pitch and How to Speak Up for Yourself in Everyday Situations. And reach out to me at Heike Yates or the Pursue Your Spark podcast and let us know how this episode has helped you stand up for yourself and get what you want. And with that, my friends, I'm out of here. Have a most awesome day and I'll see you next time on the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Ciao. 